The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning. Please turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 2 through 6 this morning. This is the last section of the body of this letter to the Colossians before we get to some personal remarks from Paul, uh, which we'll look at uh, next time we return to Colossians. Now, it's been many months that we've been working through the book of Colossians, off and on, and uh, I want to just, before we read our passage, go back and recap a little bit of Paul's thoughts, just so we can see the whole message that he's presenting to us in this book. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, verses 15 and following, Paul says that Christ is the firstborn of all creation, and he's the firstborn from the dead, speaking of his preeminence, so that he says in verse 19 that in everything he might be preeminent. In other words, that in everything Christ might have first place. This is the great theme of Colossians, the preeminence of Christ. You see, Paul is writing to refute and to defend the church from certain false teachers who had infiltrated the Colossian church and who were threatening the church with a very odd mix of mysticism and Jewish legalism. And the message of these false teachers to the Christians there was essentially that what they believed about Christ was insufficient. That if they really wanted to grow in the Christian faith, they needed to move beyond Christ. They needed to supplement Christ. They needed to add something to Christ. And the Apostle Paul, he combats that teaching by emphasizing the person and work of Christ, showing the Colossians who Christ is and what he has done. And then he essentially challenges them, not explicitly, but here is Paul's implied message to the Colossians. Uh, If Christ is who he, who Paul says he is, and if Christ has done what Paul says he has done, why then would they, the Colossians, and by extension us, possibly look anywhere else other than him if they and we truly want to grow in the Christian life. In fact, one of the major themes of the entire book of Colossians is that every believer is complete in Christ, that all the resources that we need to grow in grace are found in him. And the process of deepening in the Christian life is not, it is not starting with Christ and then moving on to something else, but rather it is starting with Christ and ending with Christ, starting with Christ and remaining in complete dependence upon him every step of the way as we are conformed to his image, the one who is the very image of the invisible God. So Paul has set forth who Christ is. He has set forth the preeminence of Christ. He has set forth the supremacy of Christ. And he says that because Christ is supreme, because all the fullness dwells in him, Therefore, he is a sufficient Savior. You do not need to look anywhere else. And again, Paul has done all of this against the backdrop of the danger posed by certain false teachers and false teaching. And in setting forth Christ's preeminence and Christ's sufficiency, as well as the equally glorious truth of our completeness in him, he totally refutes and discredits these false teachers and their teaching without ever actually spelling out in any kind of detail what it is they were actually teaching, not specifically anyway. He didn't have to. His purpose was not to describe in every detail the errors of the false teachers. Rather, he simply used the occasion, the opportunity presented by the threat to the Christians in the Colossian church posed by these false teachers. He took that as an opportunity to exalt Christ to set forth Christ in such a way 
so as to not only safeguard the Christians there, but also to provide for them the doctrinal and theological foundation necessary for their growth in holiness and Christ-likeness, which is what the second half of the epistle, beginning in chapter 3, is really all about. So again, having set forth in the first two chapters the glorious truth that Jesus Christ is the only and all-sufficient Savior, and therefore he and he alone is the source of the believer's life, Paul turns to the application of that truth beginning in chapter 3. And beginning there, Paul does what he does in most of his epistles. Having laid a foundation of doctrine in the early part of the letter, he now begins to apply that doctrine practically to the lives of his readers. And here he applies that doctrine to Christian living. After all, it does little good if Christians declare and defend the truth but fail to demonstrate that truth in their lives. We all know there are Christians who will defend the truth at the drop of a hat, but their personal lives deny the doctrines that they profess to love. Sometimes we ourselves can be guilty of that very thing. In fact, that's a very real danger in a church like ours where doctrine is highly prized. That's not a danger in so many churches where there is no sound doctrine, but where biblical teaching and and, and sound doctrine are central to the life of a church, there is always that danger that we might become hearers only, deceiving our own selves. So we have to be very careful uh, to guard against that. Because when our lives deny the doctrines that we profess to love, the potential damage to the work of God in the gospel is incalculable. We need to understand that. So beginning in chapter 3, Paul goes on and he says, And as you have received Christ, so walk in him. Don't be taken away by these philosophies and, and empty deceit of the false teachers. Don't be distracted by those things, but set your mind on things that are above where Christ is and walk in holiness, grow in faithfulness, be fruitful. And he talks about how that applies, first of all, to the fellowship within the body of Christ. That's the first 17 verses of chapter 3. And then last time we looked at chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 1, where the glorious as well as the practical truth that Christ is the only and all-sufficient Savior and therefore the source of the believer's life is applied to specific groups to specific relationships in the Christian life, namely husbands and wives, the marriage relationship, fathers and children, the parent-child relationship, and masters and slaves, which we we apply to the modern employee-employer relationship, at least generally. You see, there's a clear progression from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 6. We grow in Christ by seeking him and setting our minds on him, We set our minds on Christ by putting off what is earthly in us and putting on godliness. Having individually set our minds on Christ, we then love the family of God, walking in patience and forgiveness toward one another, working toward unity with one another, building each other up in the faith. Then, having been seekers of things above, having set our minds on things above and putting off and putting on, having loved the brethren, we love our families. We love those closest to us. And now, in our passage this morning, Paul is going one step further now outside this sphere of influence, and he's going to deal with a Christian's engagement with those outside the church, with the secular world and culture. And that's a very relevant topic for us to consider, isn't it? Our culture is becoming increasingly more secular. More than that, it is becoming increasingly wicked and ungodly, and ever increasingly hostile toward God and the people of God. And so what is to be a Christian's response to that type of culture? How are we to engage unbelievers and those who hold opposing viewpoints and and maybe even worldviews hostile to our own? Well, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6 answers that question and shows us how to love the lost, And how to make the glory of Christ and his preeminence and his supremacy and his sufficiency known to all. So with that in mind, let's pray and then we'll look to God's word. Father, we thank you for your word 
this morning. And we know your word, it, it, it delves, it penetrates into every area of our lives. It presents your grace and how we need to rest and cling to that grace in everything we do. Help me to proclaim your word this morning. Help all of us to hear it and to, and to understand it with, with ears to hear and eyes to see, minds to understand. Give us hearts to obey, Father God, your word this morning. By it, may we be equipped and encouraged. May we be challenged. By it, may those here today who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior be saved. We thank you. We know that your Holy Spirit, he is our teacher this morning. May we be attentive to him, to what he shows us today uh, from your word. May you be glorified today in the preaching and in the hearing and the obedience to your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Colossians 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Uh, This passage, it outlines very neatly and simply, In verse 2, we see continual prayer, continual prayer. And then secondly, we see clear proclamation in verses 3 and 4. And then lastly, we have consistent practice in verses 5 and 6. Continual prayer, clear proclamation, and consistent practice. First of all, continual prayer, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Paul is urging his readers to commit to a habit of prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Other translations may have it as devote yourselves to prayer. And Paul's message here is completely consistent with his overall message to the Colossians throughout this letter. What better way to express the lordship of Christ? What better way to express the preeminence and supremacy of Christ? What better way to express the sufficiency of Christ and our dependence upon him than to faithfully come before him in prayer, submitting to him and seeking his will? Amen? What better way to pursue the things that are above where Christ is than to go before him and devote ourselves in prayer to him and to give him thanks and to seek his favor and his blessing. This is consistent with Paul's message. And the early church was characterized by its prayerfulness. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, the disciples had gathered together. Christ ascended into heaven. They went back to Jerusalem. The disciples did. And Acts chapter 1 tells us that with one accord, They were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And then in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 42, it tells us about after the Spirit had been poured out on the believers, and we see this rapid growth of the church. We see that what was the church doing? The church, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The early church was committed to this way of life, to a way of prayer. And Paul himself, earlier in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, he talks about how he himself had prayed for the Colossian church, and he details the way that he prayed for them. And so now he's coming to them, and he's urging them to continue steadfastly in prayer, continual prayer. And I want to make three points about this, about continual prayer. First point is the priority of prayer. The second point is the watchfulness of prayer. In other words, we are to pray being watchful. And thirdly, the thankfulness of prayer. We are to pray being thankful. First of all, the priority of prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And that's a very necessary exhortation for us today, isn't it? 
perhaps even more so than for the church in Paul's day. Because how often does prayer tend to get pushed to the margins of our very busy 21st century lives, right? To our shame, amen? How often does prayer get neglected for more pressing concerns? Maybe the busyness of the day, the tyranny of the urgent. We find ourselves saying, we find ourselves reasoning, well, I don't have time to pray. The fact is, though, it's not that we're too busy to pray. We're too busy not to pray. Amen? Think about that. We are too busy not to pray. And it's interesting, isn't it, that in this passage where Paul later goes on to say that we're to make the best use of time, what's he saying to us to do? To commit to prayer. Amen. That prayer is indispensable. And we are to devote ourselves to it. And the neglect of prayer in the 21st century American church is probably the number one reason for the impotence of the 21st century American church, the powerlessness of the 21st century American church. I'm talking about the, you know, the, the church corporate. Obviously, there are exceptions in individual congregations. But the, come on, let's face it. The 21st century American church, we're not exactly the Book of Acts church, amen? <laughs> not even close. And even in these brief words, these brief few words, continue steadfastly in prayer. There's a tremendous blessing there, implied there. Because if Paul is able to command us to be continually in prayer, what does that imply? It implies that God continually gives us access to him. Please don't miss that that he continually hears our prayers. It's a tremendous privilege and blessing that we can come to him freely and openly and consistently, bringing our requests even before him. I mean, think about those accounts in the Bible where men and women have gone before earthly kings and sought their favor, made requests to them. You think of Esther. Remember Esther, when she went before King Hasuerus, and she really risked her life there, right? She risked her life. She put her life on the line, boldly approaching the king, uninvited, trying to seek his favor. Or Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah? When he goes to Artaxerxes and he's nervous, he's hesitant, he doesn't know if he's out of line to approach the king this boldly. Even Paul in Acts chapter 23, Paul comes before King Agrippa. And it talks about all his pomp and his show and circumstance that surrounds King Agrippa. And Paul has to be permitted to speak. He has to be per given permission to come before the king and to speak to him. And yet, church, before the king of kings and lord of lords, we have been granted full access to approach him boldly and openly and consistently. It's amazing. It's an amazing privilege to the believer. Too often we lose sight of this. Too often we fail to realize and to comprehend the incredible privilege we have in continual, unhindered access to the throne of the universe. Amen? Imagine if you had access 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to the President of the United States. Imagine if you could just pick up the phone and call him anytime, day or night, and he would take your call. You would probably be awed by that. You would probably be overawed by the incredible privilege that that is. You would probably feel very privileged, very special. You would probably even want to show it off a little, say to you, hey, watch this. <laughs> Hi, it's me. Yeah, let me speak to the Donald. That's what I call him, the Donald. We're that close. Right? And then I would say, wait a minute. Why am I talking to the switchboard operator? I don't need to talk to you. I have direct access. So I hang up the phone. That was Mary, the switchboard operator. We don't have to go through Mary. Okay, some of you got that. Good. So I pick up the phone again. Hello, Mr. President. 
It's good to talk to you, sir. Notice I'm not calling him the Donald there. Nor should we think of God as the man upstairs or, you know, the good buddy in the sky. We understand that, right? We come boldly, but we also come reverently, meekly, humbly before him. I think you get the idea. That kind of access to the president of the United States would blow most of us away. I remember back when George W. Bush was president. One day, one of his daughters, I think it was Jenna Bush, she was being interviewed on the Ellen DeGeneres program. And uh, Ellen asked her if she could just call her father anytime she wanted. Like, could you just pick up the phone and, and, and call the president? And she said yes. Now, for most of us, without that kind of access, we can't just pick up the phone and call the president. It was kind of amazing to think that. Here's a person who could just pick up the phone, bypass everything, and talk to the president of the United States whenever she wanted to. So then all of a sudden, Ellen brings out a telephone from behind the desk <laughs> and says, okay, call him. She, was ve- she got very nervous. It was interesting. She says, they're going to kill me. <laughs> Uh, and, but Ellen said something. Ellen, I guess if God can speak through a donkey, he could speak through Ellen DeGeneres. Ellen said, why? He's your father. Think about that, right? But she was nervous. I understood her nerves. This is on YouTube, by the way. You could watch it. It's very cute. I could see why she was nervous. Maybe he doesn't want to be called from the Ellen DeGeneres program without any advance warning, right? But she calls, and her mother picks up the phone. And... Uh, her mother says something like, I, I, we, we can't watch you because you're, you're, you're being taped, right? And she says, yes. And she says to her mother, what are you doing? And she goes, oh, I'm just sitting here with daddy. So Ellen is like, oh, good. We want to talk to daddy, is what she said. And sure enough, President Bush comes on the line, and they had it through the speaker. And, of course, the whole audience just went. It was amazing. All of a sudden, there's the president of the United States talking to them, right? Um, and I think, you know, we get amazed by things like that. And yet somehow we do not have that same sense of amazement and wonder and awe that we, we who believe, we have the same, the very same access to one who is infinitely higher and mightier and more glorious than any earthly president or king could ever be. We have access to the God of heaven. We have access to our father in heaven and to the throne and very presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So much so that Paul can command us to continue steadfastly in prayer. And unlike Esther, who feared for her life in approaching the king, and she was his wife, we come to him without fear. We come invited. We come commanded. And we're told to approach boldly. And that means confident. We come confidently expectantly, knowing that he will welcome us and hear us. And yet somehow that doesn't amaze us or overwhelm us with a sense of awe. And how do I know that it doesn't amaze us or overwhelm us with a sense of awe? Because if it did amaze us, if it did overwhelm us with a sense of awe, we wouldn't be as neglectful as we are when it comes to prayer. Our lives wouldn't be as prayerless as they often are. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And know this also. Remember, Paul is addressing the entire congregation with these words. So while it is to be applied individually by every believer, it is also to be applied corporately by the entire congregation together. In fact, the sense of the words here are, you all continue steadfastly together in prayer. So there's an application to all of us together, commending to us the practice, the commitment to gather together and to pray. And when we do, to especially pray for the church and to pray for our engagement and involvement with non-Christians, with the secular world around us, it is an important aspect of church life. The church is to be gathered together and to give a priority to the commitment to pray. And that is why, and please hear me, please hear me, I am not singling out anyone in particular. I am not thinking of anyone in particular. Okay? But this is why 
you must not fall into the habit as so many of us, and I put myself in there as well, as so many of us often do, the habit of coming late to service. This is not a little deal. This is a big deal. Too many Christians have the attitude that as long as they're here for the sermon, that's all that really matters. That's not only terribly wrong, it's also terribly detrimental to your spiritual health and life. The church worship service is more than just the preaching of the word, as important and as central as that is. And when you're not singing praise with the people of God, you're missing something very important to your spiritual health and life. And when you're not hearing the word of God read publicly, as we did this morning several times, you're missing something very important to your spiritual life and health. When you're not praying with the saints as we are led corporately each Sunday as we work today, again, you are neglecting that which is vital to your spiritual health and life. If you were not here for the first two songs that we sang this morning, Hallelujah for the Cross and Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, you missed a glorious time of proclaiming the gospel in song. Those words that we sang, I mean, they, they just oozed. They dripped with the gospel truth. Amen? And it was so edifying and encouraging, as it is every week. But if you're not here for that, then you miss that. You miss something vital that I believe God has uh, ordained for the growth and health of his people. Anytime the church gathers corporately to pray, whether it be our scheduled stay and pray times on the fourth Sunday of each month, whether it is specially called times or whether it, 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 it be the time set aside in, in, in uh, each Sunday in service, we need to be certain not only to not neglect those times, but we need to devote ourselves to those times. Amen? Continue steadfastly in prayer. So that's the priority of prayer. The second point concerning continual prayer is that we need to pray being watchful. Pray being watchful. How are we to pray? Look at what Paul says. He says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We're to pray by being watchful. And by being thankful. Again, in just a few words, Paul, he really identifies here two major errors that Christians can fall into in their lives. And he prescribes the way to deal with those errors, with those dangers. One of the errors would be that we are prone to become like the world around us. We are prone to be conformed to this world, assimilating into the surrounding culture and adopting the ways of those around us. This has always been a serious danger to the people of God going all the way back to the children of Israel. In other words, we begin to think and act like the world. We become numb to temptations. We become desensitized to sin and to the sins that are at work in us and around us. We become lured by temporal desires. We let our guard down to false teachers, to heresies, or even worse, we, we want to hear things that sound good, that may have a little nugget of truth that sounds good to us, and we're lured away by those things. And what does Paul says? He says, watch. Watch. Be watchful in prayer. And that would mean, or at least include, examine your hearts, examine your motives, examine your decisions, examine your surroundings, examine the messages you hear the images you watch, the words that you say. Watch, pray, being watchful. That's his message to us. In order to prevent becoming like the world around us, we must be watchful. We must be awake. We must be alert. We must be vigilant, vigilant I should say, on guard against all of the spiritual dangers around us and particularly the danger of worldliness, becoming like the world in our thinking and in our pursuits, and in our practice. Uh, there were in 1662, you remember that, right? Puritan pastors in England who were ejected from their pastorates. They did not agree to sign the Act of Uniformity to go along with certain decrees of the Queen, and so they were removed from their pulpits. 
They lost their congregations, and their congregations lost them. They lost their livelihood, their way of supporting themselves, their means. And there's a little book published, I think, by Puritan paperbacks called Sermons of the Great Ejection. Sermons of the Great Ejection. These are the last sermons that each of these men preached in their pulpits. And in the sermon by the well-known Puritan Thomas Watson, he said these words. He said, if it were the last word I should speak, it would be this word I should speak. It would be this word, watch. Watch. The last word he would leave with his congregation as he left them and didn't know what was to come of that church is simply watch. Where to watch. Paul says to watch in order to stem the tide of encroaching worldliness into the church and from the culture around us. So that's the second point concerning continual prayer. Pray being watchful. The third point is pray being thankful. Thankful. He says we're to be thankful. You know, on the opposite extreme of being assimilated into the culture around us is to disengage and and cloister ourselves so that we're not influenced or impacted in any way by non-Christians. Now, that can't be right either, amen? We know that. Anyone here ever see or hear of the movie Brigadoon or the play? Brigadoon is about this, it's this enchanted place it's a it's city of brigadoon but they sleep for 100 years and only one day every 100 years do they wake up and the city appears and of course that happens to be the day where gene kelly happens to be where it appears and he dances in there and uh falls in love with one of the uh the people there but how did this come to be very interesting They loved their way of life, their simplicity, and they saw evil in the world all around them. And they were so afraid that they would be impacted by that evil, that somehow, I don't know, the leaders there, uh, somehow they were able to magically cause all this to happen so that they would go to sleep and only... They figured if we're only awake one day every 100 years, we can't be too impacted by what's going on out there. And I know as Christians, sometimes we wish we could just go to sleep, right? And just ignore, you know, just retreat from. I mean, it's hard. You can't even turn on the TV anymore without just having the evil and the filth of this world just shoved in our faces, right? It's just, whether it's in images or whether it's just, People talking on the news and, and, and proclaiming such an ungodly worldview. And, and, it, 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 and sometimes you just, you grow angry. You grow discouraged. I do, right? And I'm sure we all do as we see all of this unfolding. And it's tempting to just disengage from it all and to just wait for the end. Or we grumble along wishing for the good old days, Right? which were never really all that good anyway. There's such a deception to nostalgia and sentimentality because when you were living in the good old days, okay, when you were living in the good old days, you didn't think they were all that good and you were longing for previous good old days, right? And then now 20 years later, you're thinking back, oh, those were good old days. Well, but when you were living them, they weren't. But we tend to think that way, right? So whether we're stuck in the past or angry and discouraged, In the present, either way, we're missing on what God is doing now. Amen? What God is doing now. We're not really engaging the challenges that are around us. If we're, again, if we're stuck in the past or angry and discouraged in the present, we're not seeing the blessings that God is doing now, the opportunities that are available now, the way God is working in the present. And so what Paul says is to be thankful. See, you can't be angry and bitter and at the same time be thankful, right? You can't. So we need to be thankful. And that's been a theme that's emphasized throughout his letter. Be thankful. And again, it would be hard to overstate the importance of thanksgiving in Paul's teaching and writing. One commentator has made the point about how the, what he says, he says it this way, the indicative always precedes the imperative. Now, what does that mean? 
what God has done in Christ for us always precedes and is the foundation for what we do for Christ. Amen? We understand that, right? Another writer says that thanksgiving is the bridge. It's the bridge between theology and ethics. In other words, the thing that takes us from our theology, the thing that takes us from what we learn from the Bible and takes us to the ethics, to what we do, is thanksgiving. It's gratitude. That's what takes us from theology to ethics. And that writer says this, in thanksgiving, we remember God's mighty acts. We remember God's mighty acts as we look forward to the continued manifestations of his own faithfulness. See, this is something the Israelites in the wilderness failed to do, right? I mean, they met so many challenges, and God would take them through them all, and each time they came to a new challenge, what would they do? They'd murmur, grumble, and complain. They'd grow bitter. They did not remember. They did not remember God's mighty acts, and therefore look forward to the continued manifestation of his faithfulness, right? And as a result, they grew angry. They grew bitter. They grew scared, frightened, uh, discouraged. They murmured, they grumbled, they complained. So as we see what God has done in the past, his faithfulness to us, his goodness to us, and we express gratitude to him for those things, then we're encouraged to face the challenges that are at hand and in the future. Knowing that he is faithful, he is good, and he is working all things together. For good. Amen? It's thankfulness that helps us engage those challenges. Thankfulness to God for all that he has done, for all that he is doing, and all that we know he will do according to his word and his promises. And so Paul first says, pray, being watchful and being thankful. Secondly, there is clear proclamation, clear proclamation And here he makes a specific request. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, at the same time, while you're continuing steadfastly in prayer, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So in order for Christians to engage non-Christians, in order for the church to engage the world, the gospel must go out. That has to be the central part of our engagement with the world. Amen? The mystery of Christ must be declared. And so Paul asks that a door would be opened for the word to go out, and that as it goes out, it would go out clearly. And I think it's a very helpful piece of instruction. He's been warning us about outsiders. He's been warning us about false teachers. He's been saying, watch out for them. He's even told us about how he's been mistreated and and confined and he's in conflict. And so you could tend to get the idea that maybe outsiders are to be avoided, that those outside the church, they're our enemies. They're the enemy. And yet what Paul is saying is that we're not to view them as the enemy and we're not to take an us versus them mentality. And that's a temptation for all of us. We're confronted by people who don't believe the gospel. We're confronted by people who do things that dishonor God. The enemies of the gospel and of God, not our enemies, but but God's enemies have become incredibly bold and incredibly aggressive in their hostility toward us, right? Toward God's people. And it makes us angry. It makes us jealous for Christ's honor. And so Paul helpfully reminds us that they are not the enemy. And we're not engaging them in order to win an argument or even to get our own way politically or culturally, but we're engaging them, those outside of the church, in order to spread the gospel, that there would be an open door for the word and the mystery of Christ to spread and for his kingdom to advance and for God to be glorified. And Paul talks about how that even happens in challenging circumstances. Look at what he says, on account for which I am in prison. He's in prison for the gospel. And there's a couple of ways we can understand that. 
And I think both are true. Most obviously, he was in prison for preaching the gospel. The secular world around him or the uh, anti-God, anti-Christ world around him hated the gospel and hated his preaching of the gospel, and they put him in prison for it. I mean, he had preached the gospel. The Jews had risen up against him, and he said he was that they said he was rejecting the law, and he was defiling the temple, and he was bringing in the Gentiles to the temple. So he was arrested, and, and he was sent ultimately to Rome. But there's another way in which Paul could mean another thing he could mean when he says, "On account of which I am in prison," not that he's in prison for preaching the gospel; he's in prison in order to preach the gospel, in order to preach the gospel. If we look in Acts chapter 23, Paul's being held in Jerusalem. He was placed in some barracks, and the Lord appeared to him. The Lord appeared to him, and he said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And how? Did Paul ultimately get to Rome? He got there as how? A prisoner. As a prisoner. So it's equally correct to say, on account of the gospel, on account that I must preach the gospel in Rome, I am in prison. And it's also true that he's in prison because he preached the gospel. The gospel has him bound. But he's also bound by the will of God the providence of God, in order to preach the gospel, that he would be taken to Rome in order to spread the gospel in that city. So Paul's bound for two different reasons on account of the gospel. And there can be open doors for the gospel even where the doors appear to be closed. I mean, we have to be on the lookout for these opportunities. Are we looking for ways to share the gospel, to spread the mystery of Christ even when the doors appear to be closed? What about at work or in your neighborhood when religion is a topic that's off limits? Well, what about in the public schools where prayer has been eliminated, where teaching the Bible is not allowed? And yet there are ways, there are opportunities to teach the Bible and to spread the gospel anyway, even in places that look difficult. We just need to be alert. What about some difficult family members? Are we looking for ways to continue to nurture those relationships and to love them and to pray for them and to share with them the love and the gospel of Christ? And then there are those times and places where it's not difficult where the door is wide open and all we have to do is speak. And yet so often we don't. Maybe we don't even recognize the opportunity. I would encourage all of you, all of us, myself included, you know, you know what we should do? First thing in the morning when we wake up, we need to ask God, we need to pray to God to give us an opportunity, to give us an open door that day to share the gospel. And then look, be alert throughout the day for that opportunity or opportunities as they may come. Then at the end of the day, pray again and ask God, show me the opportunity that I missed. Show me where I missed an opportunity to share the gospel and be a witness for Christ. And as we become sensitive to those opportunities, we'll be more encouraged to take advantage of them and to be bold in those opportunities. So there is continual prayer, clear proclamation, and finally... Consistent practice. Consistent practice. Here's Paul. He's presenting us with an approach to secular culture, to non-Christians. He's building this up. He says, first, continual prayer, and then clear proclamation of the gospel. Finally, talks about consistent practice in verses 5 and 6. Look at that. He says, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, he's commending them here to change lives, to godly lives, to a consistent practice of godliness. And he really focuses on two areas, two avenues of those lives. It's the use of time and gracious speech. The use of time and gracious speech. Now, let me just quickly speak about what Paul means here by making the best use of time. He is not speaking here about time management for the Christian, about getting a planner and prioritizing and organizing your day in the most effective and efficient way possible. Now, that's a good thing. That's a useful thing. We probably could all stand to improve in that area. 
But it literally means, when Paul says make the best use of time, literally means buying up opportunity. Buy up the opportunity. It's rendered in some translations as redeeming the time. Redeeming the, every day of our lives, we face opportunities for witnessing to the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I've already mentioned. As these opportunities come along, we should be ready to snap them up. That's what Paul is saying. The word buying even implies that there is often a cost involved. But whatever the cost may be, we should be ready to share Christ and his gospel with those who do not know him. And to ignore, now here's the point, to ignore these opportunities and to do something else instead is to not make the best use of time. To not take advantage of those opportunities as they present themselves is to not make the best use of time. Now, of course, it's more than just the words we speak. Paul is saying here that the good news about Christ should be commended to those outside the church, not only by the words we speak, the words of the gospel, but also by the changed lives and the consistent practice of those in the church. Uh, remember the way, if you, were to, if you were to look back in chapter 3, remember the way of life, the way of life that these brothers and sisters in the Colossian church had come out of? They came out of a secular way of life, to say the least, in which there was sexual immorality and impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, in chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. What about the way they talked? Paul says that they came from a way of malice, slander, obscene talk, lying to one another. And then in verse 8, he says, Put them all away. Put them all away. You see, that's the culture they lived in. And they were surrounded by that on all sides. And there was a temptation or a tendency for them maybe to revert back to those ways and to just blend in, try to fit in. And what Paul says to them, no, walk in wisdom. Make good use of the time. Take advantage of the opportunities as they present themselves and speak graciously to one another. That, that would be a compelling demonstration of the power of the gospel, a compelling demonstration of changed lives in Christ. And we live in a similar culture today, don't we? I mean, what I just read, it's exactly our culture today. We live in a culture where we have easy access to wasted time and to illicit behaviors, to gossip, to misrepresenting ourselves, the whole gamut of sinful behaviors and attitudes, and all at the push of a button, all of it at our fingertips. Amen? And yet those things, I mean, they can ruin our relationships, but worse, destroy our witness for Christ and the gospel. And so what Paul comes in and says in this letter is, he says this, basically. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and he says, whatever you do in word and deed, to ev do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, that in everything Christ may be preeminent. And not only in everything might he be preeminent, but to everyone Christ might be shown preeminent. I think that's what Paul has in mind here. And that happens by the witness of our words and the witness of our lives. So how are we to engage those in this world? By continual prayer, by a clear proclamation of the gospel, and a consistent practice of godliness. And I'm going to close with this quote. Amazingly, just this morning, as I was going over this message, I hear the ding on my phone and I got a, a tweet. I have a Twitter account. I have never once tweeted anything. I don't even know how. 
But I follow, and just setting up those I followed was a huge. I'm like, I don't know what you. I'm very technologically um, limited, uh, challenged. I'm technologically challenged in a lot of ways. So, but I follow so many of my favorite preachers. And so I get all these tweets, and they're great. I get quotes. I get links to articles that I wouldn't know about. And just this morning, you know, ding, and there it was, this quote. I don't know who, who tweeted this out even, but I believe it was a quote from Paul Tripp, the brother of Ted Tripp. Everybody know Ted Tripp, uh, shepherding a child's heart, right? Here's the quote. What a fitting end to this message this morning. A God of grace makes his invisible grace visible by sending his people of grace to reflect his grace to people who need grace. Amen? So again, how are we to engage those in the world? By continual prayer, by a clear proclamation of the gospel, and a consistent practice of of godliness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us this morning. How much we need it, oh God. We confess our need for your word. Help us to be on our guard and to be thankful and to walk in your ways and to grow in our love for you and to love our neighbor and to love them in the way that you have called us to do so. Uh, that we would continue steadfastly in prayer for the church and for the world, that we would uh, just consistently uh, uh, practice uh, godliness. Father God, that our lives, our lives would be, uh, would empower the clear proclamation of your gospel. Our lives in Christ, our changed lives, our lives of, of graciousness, Father God, toward those without, and our lives of love, our lives of obedience to you and to your word, our growing Christ-likeness, all of that would lend power to the clear proclamation of your gospel that we might see many uh, come to Christ in these very perilous times in which we live. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.